0: interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West.
1: I'm Ada Yee. And I'm David Lipton. Today, our guest is Shernaz Banji, Associate Professor in the Department of Cellular and Physiological Sciences at the University of British Columbia. In this episode, we will talk about neurotrophins, cadherins and adhesion at the synapse, and scientific heroes. All this and more coming up.
0: Srinas Bamji, Associate Professor in the Department of Sailor and Physiological Sciences at the University of British Columbia. Thank you for speaking with us today,
2: Dr. Bamji. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: So usually we like to start with a little bit about your background. So we were wondering where you grew up, and we were wondering also if you were interested in science as a kid.
2: Yeah, I was actually born in Bombay, India, Mm. and emigrated to Montreal, Canada when I was six years old. Mm. But I basically did all my training in Canada, except for my postdoctoral work that I did at UCSF with Dr. Lou Reichardt. Mm-hmm. And uh, was I interested in science as a kid? The short answer, I think, is no—not really. <laughs> but, that, <laughs> but that might reflect actually the way that I was taught science in school, as opposed to my own proclivities. Um, mm-hmm. at, at that time, my favorite subject in school was actually English, and I was—and I still am—a a really voracious reader. Oh, really. Science came a little bit later, and I probably started with a book that I read as a teenager. I was about an autistic boy, and the psychologist who worked with him to try and socialize him into the world. And uh, after reading that book, I was quite certain I wanted to be a psychologist. But in undergrad, I loved all my biology classes, and I really, really disliked any of my psych classes. (laughs) So uh, that kind of began my slippery slope towards being a a researcher. Mm -hmm.
0: Did you find biology more satisfying or mechanistic,
2: or...? I think that's exactly it. A little bit more mechanistic. I think everyone has their their comfort level with a per- certain level of abstractness, if you if you can and if you will. And uh, I certainly thought the you know biology was a little bit more tangible for me.
0: And as you said, you did a lot of your uh, scientific training in Canada. And when I was trying to figure out how exactly you got your start, I stumbled upon this paper that you I guess you must have written as an undergrad, um, dealing with 5-HT or serotonin, as as we neuroscientists know it. Uh, as a compound that acts as a neuromodular in the brain, but I don't think you're working in the brain, so can you tell us what you were working on?
2: Um, Yeah, so I had to tell my students that my first lab experience was uh, designing contraceptives for cockroaches. (laughs) Uh, That's because it just makes it sound much more glamorous than it was. (laughs) I basically was part of this insect biotech uh, initiative, and the idea was to identify peptides and amines that regulate egg-laying behavior in cockroaches. So I would dissect out these cockroach oviducts. I'd hook them up to a force transducer and apply different compounds onto the oviducts and then measure the force of their control. Traction. And this was done in Dr. Ian's Orchard's lab at the, at the University of Toronto. And, and frankly, even back then, I didn't really have the bug for research, if you will pardon the pun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, had, uh, I, I actually approached Ian to get a position as a technician in his lab because I wanted a job so I could save some money so I could go traveling around the world. Uh, but Ian looked at my undergrad marks and said, oh, you don't want to be a tech. Why not come to my lab and be a master's student? So it was, it was actually a master's oh, uh, paper I that I wrote as a master's student and so I was honored and I said yes though on hindsight maybe he just wanted to save money and not pay me technician wages <laughs> yeah. I don't know um a- anyways but each week we would get these things called which you guys you young guys right now don't know about these uh books called current contents and these are the magazines that would come to the lab wow. and we would spend you know time going through them they would be like the publications that would come out every uh every week mm-hmm. and I found myself spending some time on my own field, but spent way more time reading papers on spinal cord injury, how to regenerate axons, uh, learning and memory, and other topics in neuroscience. So I realized that I did want to go on and do a PhD, but I really wanted to change my focus of what I worked on.
1: Moving on to your graduate work, you did your graduate work at the Montreal Neurological Institute, affiliated with McGill University in Freda Miller's lab mostly looking at the trophic factor, BDNF, in cell death and survival. Uh, my understanding is that many thought BDNF to be like a reward-punishment signal between competing neurons. And you demonstrated that BDNF is transported anterogradely and released onto target populations to support the survival of target neurons. Can you just explain a little bit more about this work?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, at that time, uh, this is a while back, the canonical idea was that neurotrophins like NGF, BDNF, et cetera, uh, were specifically target-derived trophic factors that increase the survival of innervating neurons. And uh, my grad research that I did in Frida's lab, as you mentioned, uh, challenged both of these ideas. Yeah. First, we showed that BDNF could be anterogradely transported along neurites and released onto target neurons, where it could regulate mm-hmm. the survival and function of target populations. And this was pretty cool because it opened up so many more potential sources for trophic support uh, for, neurotroph- for for neuronal populations. And, and another thing that we show is that neurotrophins don't always enhance cell survival. It really depends on the receptor composition of the neuron. And we show that in some cases, BDNF actually increases the death of nerve cells. Mm-hmm. And this is really important at the time because at that point in time, they were trying to develop BDNF as a possible treatment for ALS. But you can imagine uh-huh. that any sort of widespread delivery of BDNF could be very detrimental to some neuronal populations, and that wasn't really appreciated back then when, when BDNF was considered to be just a general survival factor
0: was so wow. kind of it was a counterintuitive finding but how can you have both of those effects of uh, BDNF
2: a very good question and and that was like I said uh, mainly due to the uh, receptor composition so there are two different uh, receptors mm-hmm. one is called p75 and one is the track B receptor that's the cognate receptor for BDNF uh-huh. uh, if both these pres- uh, receptors are present BDNF mainly binds with high affinity to track B and regulate survival however if BDNF is not there and you only have p75 it can bind to p75 and actually mediate death and that was the first time that it was shown that p75 could mediate death so um so again that's very very cool finding <laughs>
1: are there now examples of retrograde BDNF signaling also mediating pro-cell death in contrast to its canonical role there? Or is this was a finding particular to the anterograde BDNF transport?
2: No, it was not particularly, uh, what do you call limited to the uh, the anterograde transport. Uh, Certainly, it depends on, like I said, you know, BDNF is released in an activity-dependent manner, whether it's anterogradely or retrogradely, depending on what cells are actually seeing the BDNF and and what the receptor composition is. That's what's going to dictate whether these cells will survive or die.
1: So there are examples of the different receptor composition taking place both. With anterograde and, and retrograde BDNF transport. Yes. Gotcha.
0: Um, and I mean, I guess I think of BDNF as very widely studied, you know. And you've made, obviously made some critical contributions to the field. Do you think BDNF uh, roles are completely sorted out today?
2: I think as a scientist, I would have to say that I don't think anything is really completely <laughs> sorted out today. So I would say no, not at all. We, we know lots about BDNF. We used to know lots about uh, neurotrophins and their role in survival and death. And there was a time where I thought, wow, we pretty much nailed this. And then came out along a you know huge big paper which sort of rocked the field. So I, I really love those big papers that rock the field and change everything that we thought we knew for years and years. So I'm looking forward to something else coming out with BDNF that's going to rock the field. <laughs> <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
0: well in any case uh, you went on to do your postdoc at UCSF um, and you did leave BDNF despite there being more work to do Um, and as you said this was with Lewis Reichart you started looking at this molecule beta-catenin and its role at synapses so beta-catenin has a lot of effects that maybe you can tell us about or a lot of roles in all, all kinds of cell types but you were looking at synapses And so, first of all, what got you interested in studying adhesion complexes at synapses? beta catenin interacts with cadherins, which are a very important adhesion molecule.
2: So, so cadherins are adhesion molecules that really maintain cell and tissue structure throughout our bodies. And in 1996, cadherins were shown to localize to the brain and specifically to localize at synapses. So, when I joined Liu's lab in 1999 as a postdoc really not very much was known about the role of cadherins and the proteins that they bind to, like the catenins, not just beta-catenin, but alpha-catenin, delta-catenin, etc. So I, I naively thought that disrupting this complex in the brain would totally cause synapses to fall apart and the mice would have these very obvious defects. And of course, we had no idea just how many adhesion molecules were at the synapse and the amazing redundancy of these molecules.
0: So was it initially a disappointing thing? Did you initially not see a huge phenotype or what happened?
2: Yeah no we didn't we didn't see a huge phenotype and but it, it didn't take that long to actually you know ferret it out and to kind of see that the the vesicle organization was disrupted,
0: and maybe you can get into a little more detail about the molecules. So, so you disrupted cadherins first, and then how did you get into beta catenins was it already known that those two are associated with each other?
2: Yeah, there's a huge, huge literature because cadherins, as I said, are expressed in the in the epithelial cells, and they've been known to bind to you know beta catenin, et cetera. And, and frankly, the reason that we disrupted beta catenin, and that's why you know the, the title of my paper is beta catenin in that neuron paper is because we wanted to disrupt all of the classic adherents that beta-catenin binds to. And so we were trying to disrupt the adherent adhesion complex, but the strategy was to disrupt oh, beta-catenin.
0: I see. I see. So it was like beta-catenin was kind of like a hub for all these many, exactly. many So it was hitting many birds with one stone, it sounds like. Exactly, I exactly.
2: See. Because, you know, you can imagine there's so much redundancy with the adherents that were in the, uh, the hippocampuses of the area that we were knocking out you know, the cadherin adhesion complex, that if we just knocked out one cadherin, we thought that that would get, you know, there would be some other molecules that would uh, replace it or, or be redundant with it. However, by knocking out beta-catenin, we can hit all of the classic cadherins.
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and beta-catenin as itself is a molecule, I was looking at a at a structure. It's actually kind of a cute molecule. <laughs> so as I understand it, it's actually, its, its name in flies is armadilla. So maybe can you... Describe for us why, why it has this name and, and what exactly is the structure of this molecule, where it
2: functions in the cell? call armadillo because, of course, the fly people called it armadillo. <laughs> it's, it's got a number of different uh, these armadillo repeats uh, within it, and that's why it's called this armadillo protein. It is expressed in, in, in virtually every single cell in the body, highly expressed in the brain as well. Beta-catenin, of course, is not only... Uh, responsible for binding to cadherin and stabilizing cadherin in the membrane, but it also plays a very important role in the wind signaling pathway as well. Mm -hmm. So it can act as a uh, co-transcriptional activator when it gets transported to the nucleus following wind signaling. Mm -hmm.
0: So a lot of diverse roles for this molecule. Absolutely. And as you were mentioning, so the big finding for you was that it actually has a role in organizing presynaptic vesicle pools. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us... You know, how exactly you showed this, maybe? And were you surprised to see this role in synapse organization? Maybe not, because as you were saying, uh, cadherins, the associated protein, is very localized to these. But but was it really some of the first evidence for this?
2: Well, I I wasn't surprised that they played a role in synapse organization, because... As you said, coherence can organize the actin, the actin cytoskeleton and organize uh, the localization of a number of proteins in the epithelial cells. So even though that's not what we really hypothesized initially, it wasn't a complete shock. And, uh, and yeah, we were the first to show this organizing role uh, of, of coherence in regula- or organizing the synaptic vesicles. And since then, there have been a number of other papers showing this as well, including papers from Yukiko Goda's lab.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there any role for yeah. uh, beta-catenin in postsynaptic organization as well, or?
2: Yes, definitely. So, so, so mainly people have been focusing on on cadherin and how it might actually uh, bind or uh, bind to cadherin and regulate cadherin's localization at the synaptic membrane, and thereby regulate the strength of cadherin-based adhesion at the synapse. And it's been shown that Codherin, that beta-catenin, both presynaptically and postsynaptically, can be regulated by activity. So, following activity, it might it, it'll change its association with cadherin and uh, regulate cadherin based strength at the synapse, which in turn regulates uh, a number of functions involved in synapse plasticity.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. So, I mean, I guess a lot of us might intuitively think that, yes, it has a role in development, but also in uh, adult function, it sounds like, too.
2: Oh, absolutely, absolutely.
1: Taking a bird's eye view to the establishment of a synapse, you write, in your paper, that there's the PTVs, the uh, p transport vesicles, which mm-hmm. transport the active zone molecules, and then the synaptic vesicle precursors, which are transported. And these two main classes of presynaptic proteins needed to be recruited to the synapse. Mm-hmm. And in your paper, you say that it, it's the synaptic vesicles that were perturbed and not the PTVs through beta catenin. Mm-hmm. Was that surprising? And so how are you thinking about uh, this coherent-mediated adhesion in this initial formation of synapses versus the establishing of synaptic strength and, and acting as a way for plasticity to happen later on.
2: The, the PTVs are the piccolo transport vesicles. These are really early vesicles. This is actually something that Craig Garner, who used to be at Stanford, had described. and. Uh, the idea is that cadherins, as well as some piccolo uh, bassoon, etc., are transported within these uh, these vesicles. They then get incorporated into parts of the uh, of the membrane, and then then after that, the synaptic the synaptic vesicles can then associate at those sites as well. And since cadherin was already there, our idea was that cadherins, through a signaling pathway including beta catenin and some other PDZ binding motifs, etc., binding proteins, etc., could then um enhance the formation of the actin cytoskeleton at these hotspots, and that these would trap synaptic vesicles to that area as they are being transported up and down the you know the, the the microtubule highway if you will of the axon
1: so more recently in your own lab at UBC where you started in 2005 you've continued to investigate synapses various other molecules involved in the construction and maintenance of the synapses you've also continued to study to study beta catenin Uh, including um, not only working out the cell biological details of its function, its binding partners, and so on, but now also the more behavioral-level consequences of its function. What have you found, and are beta-catenins implicated in any human disorders?
2: So the caterins and their their downstream partners, the catenins, have been implicated in regulating synapse plasticity as well as learning and memory. Um, Other labs have shown that if you disrupt caterin adhesion at synapses, you can prevent the acquisition of new memories, Our research has shown that if you enhance cadherin adhesion at synapses, you can disrupt cognitive flexibility. Now, cadherins themselves haven't really been genetically linked to any neurological diseases as far as I know. But that's probably because of how important and abundant cadherins are throughout the body. But brain-specific partners of cadherin, for example, delta um, has been linked to disease. And, and for example, delta has been genetically linked to um, intellectual disability, autism, and even schizophrenia, which are all neurodevelopmental diseases. So clearly, cadherins do play a really important role. However, like, uh, like I said, the genetic links of cadherins themselves to, to neurological diseases haven't been made so far.
0: Mm-hmm. So it sounds like a disease, or I guess natural disease, has in a way taken the same approach you were taking early on as a postdoc, knocking out these catenins as as hubs of where the catearins uh, kind of function and converge.
2: Exactly, exactly. Yeah.
0: And in your tests of cognitive flexibility, uh, just curious, what assays um, have you shown, uh, assuming with beta-catenin knockout mice, uh, that have demonstrated this lack of cognitive flexibility?
2: Actually, it wasn't a knockout animal. It was a beta-catenin-conditional stabilized mouse. Hmm. As I mentioned, there have been other papers and other labs who have shown that if you disrupt cadherin-cadherin interactions and cadherin complexes by using peptides, etc., you can prevent the establishment of new new memories. However, what we show is kind of the correlate of that. We show that if you forcibly stabilize cadherin within the membrane and kind of enhance adhesion at the synapse by overexpressing beta-catenin, what would happen is that th- that would lead to cognitive inflexibility. Now that's kind of important because beta-catenin has been shown to be upregulated in a number of different neurological disease cases. For example, patients with Huntington's have up to six full- increase in beta-catenin levels. And since we know that beta-catenin plays a really important role in stabilizing cadherin at the membrane, uh, we believe that that might be one of the reasons you see cognitive inflexibility in patients with Huntington's disease. Also, patients who, who take lithium for mood disorders might have increases in beta-catenin in, 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 their, in their brains as well. And this also might have detrimental roles.
0: It's a good proof of principle that when you manipulate a molecule, in order to truly understand disease, you really have to look at all aspects of manipulating not just removing, but also
2: Of course, mutation. of course. Yeah.
1: Well, I noticed you had a paper looking at the cooperation of neural ligand and cadherins at synapses, and I thought that was particularly interesting, <laughs> given that uh, both sets of cell adhesion molecules are thought to be really important for synapse formation. And I just wondered if you could tell us more about the findings in that paper and maybe further work you're exploring in that uh, vein.
2: People don't really think of cadherin as being a, a molecule that that initiates synapse formation. They've been typically think, thought of as the neural ligand, the neurexin complex uh, initiating synapse formation. Whereas cadherins really play an important role in regulating synapse plasticity uh, more downstream. Even though we and others have shown that cadherins can actually you know recruit s- synaptic vesicles to the presynaptic compartment, and certainly cadherins can also recruit and localize AMPA receptor subunits to the postsynaptic compartments. So they might play some roles in regulating the establishment of synapses, but mainly it's uh, it's the regulation of synapse plasticity. Yeah, we, uh, we just, you know, there's so many different adhesion molecules that are localized to the synapse. We just wanted to see whether there was any sort of cooperation going on, and that was the idea behind our, our paper showing the the interaction between coherence and, uh, and neural ligands. And what we showed, and there was another paper that came out actually very soon before we published our paper, unfortunately, uh, but... What we both showed was that cadherins uh, are sort of the, the first step, and they can act to recruit neural ligands, which then in turn can perhaps establish uh, or, or like um, uh, enhance the formation of synapses. So there is some cooperativity between cadherins and neural ligands.
0: Yeah, that was uh, interesting because uh, as we were looking at that, I was thinking it was almost like Codheran set up a scaffold for the Neuriligens to come in, do their role in establishment, and then they kind of step back and are still required but maybe no longer play such a prominent role. Is that an accurate description?
2: That sounds very accurate. Yeah, that's how that's kind of what we're thinking as well, though we haven't really established whether it does really set up a scaffold or exactly mm-hmm. how Codheran can do it. Mm-hmm.
1: That is really interesting and I think um, maybe is counterintuitive given what was thought about coherence in NeuroLeague and prior. Mm-hmm.
2: So. <laughs>
0: All right, so maybe to step away from the science a little bit, because we've uh, very heavily talked about this, I wanted to ask about, you have somewhat of a social network presence on Twitter, where you post not only about exciting science news of all types, but also describe yourself, um, in addition to neuroscientist and professor, uh, as soccer mom extraordinaire. So I take it you have a family, um, and do you have any comments on how you balance family life with science, because these are both really full-time careers, I would say.
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm not really sure what possessed me to get onto Twitter. Um, <laughs> I, I'm really not very active on it. I, I do have two kids, a 14 year old boy and an 11 year old girl, so I do know a little bit about social media, like Snapchat and Instagram, etc. Though I'm not on that. I really do think that I've got the whole work-life balance thing totally down. I just, I just vacillate between thinking that both parts of my life really rock and that thinking that both, both parts of my life suffering right now. The trick, I think, is obviously to be ridiculously organized when it comes, which comes very easily to me. I'm that person who has everyone's life yeah. color coordinated <laughs> on my calendar. I'm so jealous. So.
1: <laughs> I wish I could be that way. I
0: think many grad students could take, take that yeah. piece of
2: advice. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> I, I actually, I love to organize my students' life too. I don't want to micromanage, but I really want to micromanage because I love micromanaging. <laughs> But, but another trick that I have is as I don't beat myself up for the things that I cannot do. I basically I go to work, I make sure the kids have their homework done, I make sure they have rides to their extracurricular activities, but I don't stress out about things like dinner. Um, my husband deals with that. I don't freak out at lost library books <laughs> <laughs> we' probably paid about hundreds of dollars like,
0: you
2: know, Can- Canadian dollars, so it's not that bad. Uh, we probably hundreds of dollars in library fines throughout the years. Um, I I never bake for school events, like none of that kind of stuff. You know, I I coach both my kids in soccer and basketball. I've done it for many, many years. I'm very involved in their lives, but I don't worry about the small stuff and I don't try and be a Martha Stewart. So I think that if you, you know, you just have, you can, you can have a fairly good work-life balance that way.
1: Finally, we'd just like to um, ask if you can give us a preview of your upcoming talk.
2: My talk is going to encompass two projects that we have done in the lab recently and are continuing on with the, within the lab. The first project looks at how increasing cadherin-based adhesion at the synapse impacts cognition and behavior. That's one of the papers that we talked about a bit earlier. We show that increasing adhesion by increasing the expression of the cadherin-binding protein beta-catenin leads to cognitive inflexibility. And as I mentioned before, this is this is quite interesting because beta-catenin levels are indeed increased in the brains of Huntington's disease patients, might be increased in the brains of patients who are taking uh, lithium for mood disorders, and, and certainly Huntington's disease patients display cognitive inflexibility. And uh, in the second part of my talk, I'm going to be discussing some of the molecular mechanisms underlying cadherin-based plasticity.
1: Sounds great. Very cool. Well, we really look forward to it. So now we are moving on to the more fun ending part of the interview called the rapid fire session where we just ask a few quick questions and, you know, you can answer with the first thing that comes to the top of your mind. So first is, if you could speak to yourself as a graduate student, and this is you specifically, what advice would you give yourself?
2: Uh, Read more. Read a lot more. I think that as a grad student, I was in the lab all the time and I, uh, I did a lot of stuff and I probably wasted a lot of time because I didn't realize what was out there already.
0: So what do you consider to be the biggest scientific breakthrough of all time and then of the last 20 years?
1: <laughs> Loaded question. <laughs> Tough one. Maybe you can just do the last three years if you'd
0: like. Yeah. Or your favorite finding. <laughs> okay, so I
2: think that, that NGF, because I did study this, so I think the neurotropins were like a, a fantastic breakthrough. We learned so much about the nervous system because of the, and it's not scientific, it's just, of course, focusing on neuroscience, a fantastic breakthrough. We learned so much about how neurons survive, how they are, how the, the nervous system is formed, and of course, you know, with the, we discussed BDNF, how, um, the neurotrophins can continue on in the adult life to regulate the plasticity of synapses and learning and memory, et cetera. So, and to that, oh, I kind of right. tip my hat mm-hmm. to Rita Rita Levi-Malticini, who actually died just wow. recently uh, at the age of 103. And I think that she was my most, phenom- I think she was a phenomenal um, scientist and she did some phenomenal work. And she did this as a Jewish scientists working in Italy at the time of the Second World War. So she made all these incredible discoveries, and, and frankly, she didn't even do it in the lab. But she did a lot of this work in, in a farmhouse with just a, uh, a microscope and a... Um, and an incubator, yeah. a chick incubator, to look at the eggs and uh, to, to kind of hold on to her her chick eggs. So mm-hmm. I think that, of course, there are a lot of people who deserve lots of props for scientific breakthroughs. However, I think doing something like blowing open an entire field in neuroscience while uh, under the threat of war and uh, and and everything that comes with it, as a Jewish scientist in uh, Italy, I think that that's my my all-time hero, and I think that's going to be my answer for this question. <laughs> <laughs> that's,
0: that's a great, great answer. That's a very, yeah, I just heard that story while
1: I was teaching. Yeah, it's we, a wonder- we both taught yeah. the same <laughs> class, in yeah. McConnell, and uh, we had learned about that story. It's a really great one. Last question is, what book are you reading right now? Since you what? said
0: you're a gracious <laughs> reader. <Yeah. laughs> so I'm glad that
2: I'm not reading a total fluff book right now. Because I do, I read a lot of silly books. I'm actually reading a historical novel book at the moment called The Borgia Bride, which isn't really a super heavy book or anything like that. But I'm planning on going to Italy in the summer, and so I'm kind of dousing myself with lots of historical fiction from, um, from, uh, from Italy. So right now it's called The Borgia Bride, and I would give it two thumbs up. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ada. Thank you, David.
1: <laughs> and thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Yori Bujaki, Biggs Professor of Neurosciences at the NYU Neuroscience Institute at NYU. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West.
0: This episode was produced by Erica Senor, Mark Catalina, David Lipton, Andrew Gundren, Yit Nguyen, and myself, Amy. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley close composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk as well as our radio show Brains and Bourbon and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neurowrightwest.org spelled neuwrite West.org This is Neurotalk. I'm And
1: I'm David Lipton.